the homily for the Sunday of Septuagesima. My dear friends, today we read the parable of the workers in the vineyard of the Lord. And I would like to speak to you of several things. First, I would like to explain to you the gospel, this parable, and what it really means. Second, I would like to speak to you of the examples, the good examples that we have of good workers of the vineyard of the Lord in the past of the church. And thirdly, I would like to speak to you of the examples that I see even today. First, let me begin by speaking about the parable and the gospel. I remember when I was a child and I would hear this gospel and it wouldn't make sense to me. In the gospel you see that the owner of the vineyard calls the workers at different times. He calls some in the first hour of the day, others halfway through the day, others at the very last hour. They only had to work one hour. And yet when they come, when they come for their pay, he gives them all the same. And as a child, I would hear this and, and I knew that there was something that I wasn't understanding, but I couldn't figure it out, and just the parable didn't make a lot of sense to me. I knew it was true somehow, I didn't know how. Well, today I would like to, to explain it to you when, when one understands the context of the parable, to whom it was addressed, what it was supposed to mean, everything makes sense. In this parable, our Lord is speaking to the Jews about the vocation that the Jewish people had and the vocation that the Gentiles, the pagans, had to the kingdom of God. And he's making them understand that it doesn't matter if they were called at different times, they will both be able to receive the eternal reward, the reward of the kingdom. And so in this parable, the workers that are called at the first hour represent the Jewish people, the ones that received the revelation from the very beginning. And the workers that come at the very last hour represent the pagan nations, the Gentiles, those who were called only at the last hour. What is this last hour? That is the hour of the coming of our Lord. After the coming of our Lord is the last hour. To whom was our Lord addressing this parable? Well, he was speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were among the most proud groups in the Jewish people. They were actually, you could say, the, most, the ones that were filled with pride. For them, the Jewish people was privileged above, above all nations. And the destiny of the Gentiles, of the pagan nations, was nothing to be crushed by the Messiah and be enslaved by the, by the Hebrews. This was a twisted view that they had of the prophecies of our Lord. And in order to correct this view, is that our Lord gives them this parable to explain to them that even if the Jewish people were called first, they have the entrance to the kingdom of God, but they will receive the same thing. And the, Jew, the pagan nations, even though they were called last, they also have the same entrance to the kingdom of God and they will be able to receive the same eternal reward if they embrace the faith. This is the sense of the final words of our Lord when he says, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. What he means to say, the last shall be first, he means to say the Gentiles who were called last, you know, the pagan nations who were called only at this, at this last hour, they will be the first to enter the church. And then he says, 
and the first shall be last. And by that he means that the Jewish nation, who was called first, will actually be the last to embrace collectively the church, the faith, the kingdom of God. That is the explanation, my dear friends, of the parable. But as we look at the parable today, we may also think of those workers in the vineyard of the Lord. Obviously, the workers mean the bishops, the priests, the sisters, all of these people who have consecrated their lives to work in the fields of the Lord. Who are the harvest? The harvest, my dear friends, are yourselves. You are the wheat that the priests and the bishops and the sisters gather for our Lord. You are the grapes that they take care of so that you turn into good wine for our Lord. You are that harvest, that treasure that God has, that has been entrusted to us, whether it be that we are worthy or not, but our Lord has entrusted this great treasure, the greater one that he has, to us poor creatures. Some of us were called from our youth. Some of us have been called only at a, at a later time. You know, there have been priests and sisters and seminarians that joined and they were from the very beginning of their lives very pious and serving God. Others, like myself, were idle in the world for hours and hours until our Lord came and said to us, Why are you here all day idle? Come you also and work in my, in my fields, in my vineyard. But regardless of that, regardless of the, even the faults that you find, it is true that in the Catholic Church there are and there have always been good workers, holy workers, that are edifying and that work all their lives with great effort in order to try to save souls. Today I want to tell you the story of one of those first workers in the vineyard of our Lord. It was the story of St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch. Now St. Ignatius is called an Apostolic Father. This is a title that is not given to many. What does it mean? When you call a saint an apostolic father, it means you call him father because he's one of the first saints of the Lord. He's one of the first saints, first, excuse me, first saints in the church. And you call him apostolic because he was in contact with the apostles. Those are the saints that were the next generation after the apostles. So, for example... Ignatius was the third bishop of Antioch right after St. Peter, so he got to know St. Peter and other apostles. St. Ignatius was friends with St. Polycarp, who was the direct disciple of the apostle St. John. So that's why we call them apostolic fathers. St. Ignatius, being the bishop of Antioch, was one of the most important men in the church at his time. And it was during his time that the Emperor Trajan began a persecution against the Catholic Church. The Emperor was zealous to have this persecution be enacted, and so he traveled himself to his provinces to make sure that the laws would be put into place. When the Emperor comes to Antioch, he himself interviews personally St. Ignatius, and he asks him, Are you a Christian? And St. Ignatius says yes. And the emperor then threatens him with death. He threatens him with being sent to the, to the beasts to be devoured by lions. 
And the answer of St. Ignatius is to give thanks to God and to start weeping tears of joy, because finally his request would be given to die for Christ. And the emperor, knowing the importance of these men, says to him, No, I don't want you to die in Antioch. I don't want you to die here in a province. I will send you to Rome so that you die in the circus, so that you're made an example for all Christians in the kingdom. And so he puts ten soldiers to guard St. Ignatius and to bring him to Rome, where he would be devoured as part of a savage celebration that would last for a hundred days and more, where Christians would be killed and slaughtered and martyred for the entertainment of the people. At this moment, my dear friends, pause for a second. Often when we hear these stories, we think of the saints as if they were some kind of fictional character, as if they were half truth and half not. Think for a moment of the St. Ignatius as a man that you know. Think, for example, of our bishop, and imagine if you were to see our bishop walk into the circus, standing at the gates, standing at the door, at the threshold, hearing the lions out there, hearing the roar of the crowd, the banging in the, in the stadium, you know, those huge sounds. And imagine your bishop that you know, the men that you know, standing there, ready to be killed by the lions. My dear friends, this was a real thing. This was a real bishop. This was a real man that endured these things. A man whose knees perhaps trembled of fear. A man who felt his heart racing as he was about to meet death. But at the same time that he had that human weakness... He had strong faith to support him and to move him onwards to that martyrdom. St. Ignatius, as he was going to Rome in this ship, the ship would stop in different towns. And St. Ignatius wanted to do as much good as he could for the church, would write letters to all these communities. These letters, my dear friends, we still have them. They're one of the greatest treasures that we have of the first times of the church. It was in these letters that St. Ignatius says the words for the first time that we would hear for centuries, Ecclesia Catholica. He is the first one to call the Church of Christ the Catholic Church. St. Ignatius, in his first, in these first times of the church, you can see this good bishop who was extremely concerned about uh, protecting all these communities from heresy. And in all his letters, you see that constant concern to stay away from heresy. At that time, there were two main heresies that were, uh, that were threatening the church, the Ebionites and the Docetists. And St. Ignatius warns the faithful. That is one of his main, main duties. Against these heresies, one of the things that he encourages Christians to do the most is to be united to their bishops. He said to them, Follow all of you the bishop, as Jesus Christ followed the Father. Wherever the bishop appears, there let the people be. In the same way that wheresoever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. He said to them, It is not lawful, apart from the bishop, either to baptize or to hold the reunion of Christians. This was again at the first times of the church, obviously later on, it was allowed that the priests would also baptize. 
But what you see here that is very important is how the church always relied on the bishops as the successors of the apostles, as a source of unity, and ultimately, obviously, to the bishop of Rome, to the Holy Pope. At that time, the Romans were doing some appeals to authorities to try to save St. Ignatius. And so he writes to them. He writes to them telling them, desist, allow me to be martyred. He told them that he wished that the beasts would not do to him as they did to other martyrs, to whom the lions would not devour, and the lions would refrain from attacking them. Instead, he said, if the, if the lions refuse to attack me, I will encourage them myself. I will go in there and I will bring them to me. Because I want to be united to Christ. I want to follow Christ's example through martyrdom. They say that as he was about to be devoured, St. Ignatius says, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, beasts, broken bones, dismembered men come upon me, so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. My friends, these members of the church, which give us good example, are not absent nowadays. I was telling you that I also wanted to speak to you about the examples that I see today. I was recently reached out uh, by a man who was questioning me about our bishop. And I tried to defend the bishop as, as much as I could, or rather I tried to say the truth, I should say, about the bishop. And my friends, I am not prone to... I am not prone to be blindly devout to anyone. I am not prone to be a person that doesn't question things. I am not prone to be a person that is given to adulation. But I have to speak the truth when I see it. And I must say that if I've ever been edified by someone, it is actually by our bishop. Here is a man who does not require tuition from his seminarians. He hosts them all for free. All they have to do is work, study, do their duties, and then they can get ordained. I don't know of any other bishop that does that. I'm sure there are, but I don't know of any. Here is a man that I've seen rely blindly on providence, going ahead, building things, making convents, building churches, establishing communities, all of that with no great savings, with no huge accounts, with nothing but what comes to him through the day. I remember one day he came into the classroom and he told us, well, the money that, was, that we had saved has been spent because we had bought the new property for the seminary. And he told us straight out, we don't have much money left. <laughs> and now we have to, to try to save. And one might question me, and, and you know, this man was questioning me and saying, well, how do you know that he doesn't have money here or there? I, I have lived with this man for five, year, five years. I've seen the room where he sleeps. He doesn't even have a house or a known facility for himself, not even a rectory for himself. I can tell you, my dear friends, and this is true, that there are, and I can, one, I am one of them, there are priests in our congregation that live in better conditions than our bishop does. My room is three times as big as the one of the bishop. I know priests that have their own rectory. The bishop does not have one. His rectory is combined, is the same building that they, where they have the school facilities 
and the other things that they have there for the installations of the seminary. Here is a man that lives the most simple life, that eats the most simple food, that is resigned to, to very poor things, that lives just like I would imagine seeing a bishop in the first times of the church. Here is a man that I have seen travel seven, eight hours to give confirmation to one, one person. Not receive anything instead, not ask for anything instead. Maybe he was given some money for the gas, I'm sure it wasn't even enough to pay for the trip. And then after that, leave, travel another three hours in order to go see a sick child. Here is a man that I have seen for five years. Never take a vacation for himself that lasted more than a few days. And those vacations that he took for himself, even those he used for some spiritual work. What was his vacation? A simple thing to go out in the fields, to do some hunting perhaps. Never with luxury, never with great spending of money, never with anything that could be dissatisfying. For five years, I've always known where he is, I've always known where he was on a mission, I've always known that he was visiting this church or that church, working here or there. There was only one instance, I remember, where I didn't know where the bishop was. He had had a heart attack and he was in the hospital. That was the only time that we didn't know where he was until later on we were told. I was accused by, by this man whom I was talking to about the bishop to have a blind devotion, to be deceived. My friends, I am quite aware that the bishop is just a man with faults as any other. And I disagree with him sometimes, as men often do. But I have to recognize what I see. And if ever I have seen virtue, if ever I have seen a zealous priest, if ever I have seen someone disinterested in himself and rather interested only in doing good to others and in saving souls and in serving our Lord Jesus Christ, you might disagree in the way in which he does. But I know his motives. I have seen them. And if ever I have seen those things, I say again, it is precisely in him. Would I call him a saint? No, I would not. Because for that it is necessary that we persevere. And I pray that the bishop perseveres. And we all must pray that he perseveres. But I must say publicly, here in front of everyone, what I have seen with my own eyes and witnessed myself. I don't know of any priest that works harder than the bishop. Or at least that works more than the bishop. And the bishop is over 60 years old. My friends, I could continue in this rant, you could say, but you get my point. My point is that in our Lord's vineyard there are still very good workers, holy workers, upon whom we may gaze and be edified and inspired even in our own days of crisis in the church. You might say there are faults on them, there is flaws on them. Sure, of course there are, constantly, certainly, in every worker, even in the best ones. But I will also tell you that you will find in them, as I've told you, very good examples that prove to us that our Lord does not abandon his church, that even in these times he provides it with good shepherds, shepherds that, like St. Ignatius and like our bishop, indeed resemble our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray to them then, then, 
for our pastors, for our bishops, for their sanctification, because their sanctification leads to our own salvation. But most importantly, let us pray for their perseverance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.